Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. About purifying anyway, so um, cleansing, whatever you call it. Yeah. <clears throat> So I wanted to uh, talk about a topic that um, I talked about for quite some time uh, over the last few years, and it feels important to bring it into our retreat, and that is the topic of joy, or one could say um, the cultivating of the wholesome or the gladness of the wholesome and want to put it into the context of our practice here. We can get um, very tuned into and focused on dukkha since it is the first noble truth. There is dukkha, there is suffering. Second noble truth, there is a cause of dukkha or suffering. Third, there is an end to suffering. And fourth, there's a path leading to the end to suffering. And it's really important to learn how to work with suffering That's or dukkha. That's why the Buddha put it right out there, the first teaching. Because he said, if you can understand and come to terms with the fact that life inevitably um, has dukkha because there's no lasting happiness, as has been mentioned, then you are not afraid to look at that fact and learn how to deal with it and work with it and overcome it. Um, But that's just half the teaching on wise effort. Dawn mentioned it in her talk uh, yesterday about four wise efforts. Guarding against unwholesome states so that they, you minimize their arising. Overcoming them when they are here. Learning tools to work with the unwholesome states or akusala as was mentioned, akusala, unwholesome meaning states that are, uh, that are suffering and that lead to more suffering. <clears throat> Greed, hatred, delusion, um, others that we could put in there, uh, judgment, fear, jealousy, um, a whole host of those contracted states. And then he said to cultivate wholesome states, mindfulness, metta, compassion, joy, equanimity, all wholesome states, patience, generosity, etc., etc. Kusala, states of well-being when practiced are, um, are a state of well-being in the moment as they deepen, they continue to develop in that direction. 
And then the fourth is when a wholesome state arises, he says this is skillful to maintain and even increase that wholesome state. But that doesn't get as much airplay as working with suffering. And so I found it um, very important in my own practice to pay attention to that side of the equation. Um, and when I, when I did, it opened up a whole other way of understanding the teachings. Um, I think I, I mentioned when I first got exposed to uh, the teachings, the Dharma in 1974, and hearing Joseph uh, talk about a way to truly be free, I was so excited, and I just went for it and did lots of re retreats. Um, I was so motivated. Um, several three-month retreats and many shorter retreats over the next... 10 years or so, it was, that was what my, really the focus of my life was on my internal development and, and, and learning to live out in the world and be in wonderful relationship and, and apply those practices. But it was mostly um, um, that internal journey because I believed in the Dharma, and I wanted to shout out to everybody. I did when I first got turned on. You just have to be mindful. You just have to be mindful. And my friends would kind of slink away and give me a little space. It was, I didn't learn the art of the soft cell in those early days. Um, but at some, some point, I became um, really serious about my practice. And I, I lost my joy for a while. And it was confusing to me because here it was something that was so precious to me, but somehow there was a vitality that was lost at, at some point and I, I misconstrued certain teachings or and, and felt that it wasn't okay to let my natural mm, um, sense of wonder and delight and, um, and love really come out in that overt way. And it wasn't, it was, it was difficult. And I, I realized after a while, I wasn't the only one. And I wanted to read to you a, a passage I love by Ajahn Sumedho that describes this not uncommon um, predicament. Sumedha, who I, I've quoted from before, he said, it's like this. He says, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, that is the, the way of the elders, the, the teachings from the Pali Canon that have come down to us, and particularly in Thailand and Burma, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism and Sri Lanka, Sometimes in Theravadan Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. 
If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. (laughs) Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. (laughs) This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive, which is one of the, um, like the cemetery contemplations or the the contemplations that the Buddha uh, suggests. It's a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, anatta, to practice that way, but it can leave the impression that the that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. Once you have true insight, though, then you find that you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them, we find joy. The Buddha was called the happy one, not the suffering one. He was called the happy one. He said, go for true happiness, go for the highest happiness, and all the other genuine happinesses will will unfold and be available to you. The Dalai Lama starts his beautiful book, The Art of Happiness, with the sentence, the purpose of life is to be happy. The purpose of life is to be happy. Just really, that's such a powerful line for me. The purpose of life is to be happy, not out of selfishness, not out of um, self-indulgence, but because when we find true happiness within, then all of our beautiful qualities naturally shine through and everyone gets the benefit of it. So I found it really important to take a look and see how the mind can, can get skewed, particularly in practice, towards the seriousness, the, the, the solemnity, and forgetting about this other dimension of wholesome states that the Buddha talked about. Because unless you really take in those, that other side of the equation, um, you'll be on the lookout for suffering. And it's a good exploration up to a point, but the you will find what you look for. That's how it works. Neuroscience knows this, the confirmation bias, that the brain will selectively notice what it is looking for. 
So if you're looking for how there's so much dukkha in your practice or in your life or you're saying, oh, there might be a storehouse of stuff that, I'm, that needs to come out. Let me just keep on looking and excavate for all of the, all of the sorrow and all the sadness in my life. There's no end to that. You can find all you want, but you don't have to keep on churning it out until you get to the bottom of it. Life is dukkha, has dukkha. But if you start to look for all the good inside, all the beauty inside, the Buddha right within you, the more you look for that, the more you'll find it. That's how this works. And this is who we truly are. This is our true nature. That's why this practice is called Vipassana, to see things clearly, to see things as they really are, because when your mind isn't obscured by the kalesas, the fetters or defilements, what you see is really good news, both internally and externally. This is how you came into this world. and I, I love this picture. I, some of you might have seen it before. I don't know if you can see it from the back. This is um, Chloe Thomas from Melbourne, Australia, who was actually born uh, premature. She had not yet come to nine months after conception when this picture was taken. That's who you are. You might say, well, that was a long time ago. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> or maybe. I don't know if it's... That's who you are. And if you are fed and diapered and given a little bit of love, what do babies do? They squeal with delight. And even if you weren't, it's still in there waiting to come out. And I've seen this from people who didn't think they had any, anything in there, but when they've started to practice and they see, oh, there's some love in here, there's some genuine compassion in here, you wouldn't be here if that wasn't so, if there wasn't something beautiful that's kept you going through all of your trials and tribulations and whatever your history in your life. <clears throat> So, I wanted to take a look and see what teachings um, could be applied not only to overcome the, the unwholesome, but to cultivate the wholesome and to even maintain and increase the wholesome when it's here. We've been practicing all of these practices, mindfulness and and loving kindness and, and the Brahma Viharas and all the things that we've that we've been doing are practices that cultivate wholesome states. But let's go one further and maintain and deepen those wholesome states. Because the Buddha said, as you develop those wholesome states and they ripen, 
whether it's the seven factors of enlightenment or the five spiritual faculties or the, the ten paramis or whatever, all of those wholesome states, they lead to a mind that is ripened and ready to awaken. So I, I um, took a look and looked at different wholesome states and I put them in this package that I call awakening joy. But the word joy can be a very tricky one. It can trip people up. Joy, it might have a, images of dancing through fields of daisies and you know slow motion commercials and say that's not me or you know uh, doing cartwheels and uh, that's not what the Buddha was talking about. Although it's true that there are states of bliss and rapture, but there are all kinds of states of well-being that are on a continuum of happiness. There's piti, usually translated as bliss or rapture, sukha, happiness, pamoja, gladness, santuti for contentment, Shanti for peace, calm, pasadi. There's many, many flavors of well-being. And I just call it awakening joy because it's not as catchy as saying, it's less catchy to say awakening well-being. But really we're talking about well-being here. And in the Buddha's way of seeing things, he actually said the more refined levels of well-being are not as intense and, and gross as, um, as bliss and rapture. And so going up the, the ladder from going for the gusto that we like to think about in our, in our Western world, you know, oh, you're really doing it if you kind of get blown away by joy. He said, that can be enjoyable, but it's not so sustainable. And even more um, refined is happiness without all of that excitement and going further up, uh, contentment and peace. And he said, there's no higher happiness than peace. So it kind of turns, turns it upside on, on its head, our usual thoughts about joy being intense. But when I say joy, or whatever word, translate it in a way that, that works for you. What does that, that word evoke for you? Is it resistance? What word would work better? Well-being, contentment, ease, peace. Whatever word you use, if there's that sense of an opening and relaxing into your true nature, into reality. That's the right one. Words have power, so you want to find the words that, that really resonate for you. <clears throat> and something just to keep in mind as I did this exploration is that people who have found this the secret of happiness, you know, and by the way, 
the Dalai Lama and, and Desmond Tutu have a, a really beautiful book, The Book of Joy. Um, people who, who really understand well-being are not happy all the time. If they are, they're living in denial. You know, yes, I'm happy. You know, and that's that's not it. People who who really have are willing to be here for everything are not overwhelmed when the the challenges come, and they don't miss all the beauty and the goodness in life. So. <clears throat> As I looked in these uh, teachings, there were three teachings of the Buddhas that really struck me that I found helpful for myself and also um, like to share with others about cultivating well-being. And one is this first teaching on the wise efforts. So that's the first thing, understanding where real happiness lies, okay? And when you cultivate true happiness, it's not about grasping or gaining something. It's right in the moment. Think of what brings you joy right now. Actually, I'll just ask you, just close your eyes. And just incline the mind. What brings you joy? And as you're thinking of whatever it is that does that, true well-being, notice how it feels in your body. Notice the experience right in your body. Okay. Okay, and you can open your eyes. <clears throat> Anybody say their um, their jewelry? <laughs> Anybody say their? I mean, you might. Yeah. Your wardrobe? No. Take a few comments, but you have to say it out really loud so I can hear. Uh, what brings you joy? Just raise your hand. Turkeys? Turkeys on the land. Just seeing them. Yeah. What else? Beautiful day. A beautiful day. Mm-hmm. Partying with your family. Pa- Lovely, all the way in the back. Joy and happiness with your kids. Yeah, one last one. Say again. Grandkids. Yeah, pretty similar. Yeah, family, nature. Uh, anybody thought of their pet, their their dog or their cat? Yeah, yeah. Dancing. You know, those things are not about things. And then I want to ask you, how did it feel inside? Anybody else describe what the feeling is like inside? With a word, loud word, say, all the way in the back. 
content, okay? And the, if you can, just describing the physical feeling. Yeah. Open, lovely. Yeah, I'm not looking for any right answer. All the way in the back. Peaceful and expansive. One more, if there is. Say again? Scintillating, yeah. So all of these, there's a physical feeling in the body that comes with it. So the first principle is cultivating a wholesome state. And the second one of the Buddhist teaching is uh, in one sutta, Majjhima 99, where he says, feel the gladness connected with that wholesome state. He gives the example, if you're in the middle of a generous act, he says to reflect, oh, I'm being generous now. And he says, that's a good thing. Not, I hope everybody sees how generous I am, but rather, oh, it feels so good for generosity to move through me. He says, tune into that. And the, the words are, that gladness connected with the wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. That gladness, one delights in the truth, one uh, gains inspiration in the meaning. He says, this is a good thing. Not to miss the gladness that's associated with the wholesome. And this takes some practice because often we just stop it knowing, yep, feeling pretty good right now, but it's a whole other level to know, oh, this is what it feels like to feel good. And that's where mindfulness is so key in maintaining and increasing the wholesome state. My friend Rick Hansen, many of you know, um, neuroscientist, he was on the board here for, for many years and, uh, and is a good friend. Uh, and he came to a Awakening Joy course a number of years ago and he said, Here's, here was his formula on a neuroscientific level. He said, if you're experiencing a moment of true well-being Hang out with it for 15 seconds. This is what he advises. Yeah, and you don't have to say, excuse me, I'm having well-being now, so don't, don't interrupt. You can just do it, you know, surreptitiously. Nobody has to know that you're having a good time. But just feel what it's like inside. And he says, if you do this in your daily life six times in a day, that's 90 seconds of well-being if you can stand it. Okay, do that six over a two-week period. You will notice a shift, likely in your level of well-being. One, because you're deepening those neural pathways as you take them in, and two, because you're starting to be on the lookout for the good. And it takes practice to be on the lookout for the good. We have that, this almond-shaped cluster of neurons, the amygdala in our brain, that scans the horizon for what can go wrong. 
and under stress that much more. Or if that's what we're used to looking for, that's what it lands on. So to shift that, you need to start noticing what's, what's good. Thich Nhat Hanh, who recently passed away, as I'm sure all of you know, the beautiful uh, meditation master, poet, activist, he said, notice what's not wrong. Instead of noticing what's wrong, and he gives this example, oh, I had a toothache last week. I don't have a toothache now. How wonderful. So to start noticing what's not wrong, that takes practice. I, I saw a study that said one, one negative encounter with somebody that kind of, you know, somebody speaks to us sharply or something that, um, that activates us. Um, most people need seven positive encounters to come back to stasis. You know, hi, how are you doing? One, you know, hey, I hope you're having a good day. Hey, I really, two, you know, until you finally get to seven and, oh, okay. Now, if you've practiced opening up to all the good, that ratio shifts a lot dramatically. As Rick says, the, the brain is Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative experiences. So that's the second principle, noticing the gladness of the wholesome along with cultivating wholesome states. And then the third principle, teaching of the Buddhas, uh, in uh, Majima 19, he says, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of their mind. If you frequently ponder upon how you're not good enough, that becomes the inclination of your mind. If you frequently ponder upon how amazing it is that somehow the Dharma has led you here and how blessed you are, that becomes the inclination of your mind. Or the modern neuroscience uh, axiom coined by Donald Hebb, Neurons that fire together, wire together. And that's what we're doing, wiring those positive neural pathways. So, given that, I want to share with you a few of the wholesome states that I found really um, powerful to develop, to start orienting towards well-being. And in your practice in these days, I invite you to take on the general principle of starting to notice the good. You don't have to pretend. If you're going through a hard time, it's not like you're living in denial because one of these states, which you'll hear more about, I think, from Tuwari, um, uh, is it tomorrow night? Yeah. Is how opening to suffering itself can lead to well being and joy. But besides that magical alchemical transformation, 
we can actively, as the Buddha suggests, cultivate the wholesome and really let yourself experience the gladness of it when it's here. And somehow, just being on the lookout for it reorients you. So, um, I'm not going to get to all ten that I that I have picked out that I that I share in, in in my course, but just a few of them, and particularly how they relate to here in in practice. Um, so, the first one that I just I'll just I need to touch on because it is so key. The first wholesome state is intention, is a wholesome, positive intention. The second aspect of the, of the Eightfold Path, right thought, also called wise or right intention. Once you understand suffering and the, and, and the Four Noble Truths a little bit, then there is the decision to go for it, like I've shared in, in my own practice, and that starts you facing in the right direction. As the Buddha says, intending, I tell you, is karma through body, speech, and mind. Intention is behind all karma. And we had that in our practice here today. Uh, and as, as was pointed out today and yesterday, Temple mentioned it, there's, there's different levels of intention. There's intention in every moment, okay, intending to get up, getting up, how, how the mind uh, and body are interrelated, and in every single moment there's intention. The bigger intention, the wider intention, is having a, an inspiring aspiration that moves you, that um, gives you juice to do this very um, challenging practice. In the teachings, there's a, a teaching I love called um, Clear Comprehension of Purpose, which orients you to what really matters for you. And when you have that orientation, then everything you do is held within that context. And it might change. It might be, oh, I want to learn to love as much as I can, or I want to be free and awaken, or I want to... um, be free of suffering, or I want to um, uh, share my practice for the benefit of all. It's not like there's one right intention, but what for you orients you in the direction of greater well-being. Intention is really powerful on a neuroscience level too, because once you get clear on your intention on this aspiration level, it primes the brain in a way that starts to orient you and gives you a positive confirmation um, bias. This is a a study that um, Sonia Yubomirsky, who wrote a book, The How of Happiness, she's a positive psychologist uh, and and neuroscientist, um, just showing how important motivation is uh, in increasing our happiness. 
um, she and her colleagues recruited two sets of subjects who would each practice the same techniques proven to help develop happiness. One group responded to the invitation, do you want to be happy? This study is for you. The other group simply signed up for a generic psychology experiment without any particular motivation. The effects were striking, she reported. The motivated participants became a great deal happier while the non-motivated participants improved slightly or stayed the same. And in another study, she found that the motivated students were also more likely to make the effort to do the assignments and therefore more likely to receive benefit. Dan Siegel in The Mindful Brain, he's another neuroscience expert, uh, he says, with the intention to be happy, the brain is primed to orient ourselves, to look for things in our external world that will support that intention. Uh, not only uh, to, that it feels good inside, it also affects how we see the world around us. So the first intention would be um, to orient yourselves towards well-being. So here's a little exercise I invite you to do with me. Just go inside. You're here because something really moved you to sign up for one or two months. What spoke to you? What was your that calling in your heart? And now, get in touch with the fact that you are doing just the practices that will help cultivate that. And imagine as you go through these weeks that you get better and better at freeing the mind of confusion and awakening towards more clarity and kindness. And as you do, just imagine what it will look like to everybody else in your life who will benefit. Six months from now, two years from now, just keeping on with your practice, not with a report card or a timetable, but you are just showing up to support that. And if that feels like a good thing to do, just wanting to anchor your commitment to practice, to give that to yourself and just decide to go for it. Whatever doubts come up, they're just thoughts. Go for it in your heart.
So the intention to put well-being at the center of your life, this is a powerful um, commitment to yourself and everybody benefits. Now you have to be really patient with intentions because old habits die hard. It takes a while, so you have to be patient with the process. Somebody asked Thomas Edison um, how it felt to, uh, in, his, uh, in his quest to invent the light bulb, how it felt to fail 2,000 times. He had 2,000 attempts before he succeeded. And he looked at the man he said, my good man, I did not fail. I invented the light bulb. And it was a 2,000 step process. <laughs> so every time you see that you're trying it a new way, ah, great. That's called a growth mindset. And not to get discouraged when you see those old habits. And when you widen your intention so that everybody benefits, not just you, that gives even a deeper meaning to it. So that's the first step. And I'll just briefly mention a, a, a few more and I want to focus on one in particular towards, towards the end, the time I have. So mindfulness is the key, is the basic tool of a life of well-being. That's the second step in the way I see it. Uh, because as was said, uh, uh, Dawn talked about this last night, it has the unique property of weakening the unwholesome states, akusla, and cultivating the wholesome states. It's the w one unique out of all the mental factors, 52 mental factors, that has that dramatic uh, uh, an effect on both ends of those equations. That's why the Buddha said, this is the most direct way to realize the highest happiness. And it also, when applied to a wholesome state, when you pay attention to it, it amplifies the wholesome state. Not by grasping, you're having a, a wholesome state. You know, oh, I'm feeling so much love right now. And if the thought comes, oh, how do I keep it here? It's just turned into an unwholesome state. Uh oh, what if it goes? Oh, what if I, if any kind of grasping and it's turned into a, a state of contraction. So the way to maintain and increase that wholesome state is to just be present for it. Don't miss it. Knowing that it's impermanent like everything else, why would you want to miss it? And why would you want to spend time being afraid that it'll go? It'll go. But as soon as you're afraid that it'll go, it's gone. So just enjoy it. You know, gladness connected with the wholesome.
Then I'll I'll mention one one other one uh, before I go to the one I really want to get to. Um, gratitude. I'm sure you. It's so common here on retreat as you open more and more that the heart just fills with amazement and gratefulness. How many people have felt gratitude in these days? Isn't that amazing? If your hand didn't go up, don't worry about it. You're, you're right where you need to be. But it's usual that as the heart opens, you feel connected with everything and it overflows with gratitude. And the Buddha said, this is a really good thing in the, the Blessing Sutta, the Mangala Sutta. He says, among other blessings, he says, to be content and grateful. This is a blessing supreme. And what gratitude does, in a moment, it opens you up. Instead of, instead of that contraction, in a moment, you're opened up. I heard one Tibetan master talk about this. It's like putting out your satellite dish. When you say, thank you, ah, you can receive all the blessings. But if you're busy mm, grumbling and complaining and, oh, why is this? That's not, oh, my my shoulder hurts. and uh, You know, those things might be true. But if you're focused with aversion, there's no way for you to receive the blessings in life. So putting out your satellite dish and realize when things are hard, you're learning, you're deepening hopefully, compassion and understanding and courage and uh, inner strength and balance. So, here's a little exercise to show you how applying mindfulness to a wholesome state works. Just try this. You might sit up for a moment. Bring some blessing into your consciousness. Someone or something that you're really grateful for. And call up an image of that person or that life circumstance. And as you call up that image, connect with that gratitude and you might just silently say thank you from your heart to that person or to life. Thank you. And now just relax in that feeling of gratitude. Feel it in your body. Just nothing you need to make happen. Just enjoy it. Oh, thank you. Take a nice deep breath. And let's call up a a second blessing. Again, someone or something you're grateful for, grateful to. 
call up an image. And once again, a simple, sincere thank you right from your heart. Thank you. And then just enjoy it. Relax into it. Nothing to hold on to. Just don't miss it. Oh, thank you. One last one. Do things in threes in, in Buddhism. Nice deep breath. One more blessing. Call up an image. A simple thank you. Really let yourself feel it. Thank you for this too. Thank you for being in my life. And then just enjoy it. Be present for it. Notice how it feels inside. It's just inclining the mind, or if a wholesome state arises, ah, let me just feel it. This isn't cheating, this is, this is good. So, I'll just uh, mention so many wholesome states. Um, when you're feeling aligned, with your um, commitment to the precepts, the bliss of blamelessness. Every time you, uh, you are in alignment with integrity, ah, oh, let yourself feel it. Every time you simplify and you don't give in to, say, a craving or in, uh, uh, something that doesn't serve you and you let go, Ah, the joy, like uh, Dawn spoke of, of renunciation, of nakama, of simplifying. Ah, don't miss that. We've been doing here, we've been practicing um, metta for ourselves and for others. Ah, whenever there's a feeling of genuine metta, of even just a basic kindness towards yourself, or even the wish for kindness towards yourself. Don't miss it. And when it comes out, if you're down in the dining room and you're feeling well-wishing for others around you or passing them on the, on the walk, walkway, ah, how beautiful, oh. I'm feeling some goodwill and kindness now. How wonderful that I can be wired up for that. And when there's a movement towards compassion, this is another really wholesome state. And we'll be talking more about, we started with compassion 
uh, on uh, the Brahma Viharas. What a beautiful state, either towards yourself or towards others. I want to, in the just few moments that I have left, talk about um, what is really the mm, a fruit of practice, which is not about cultivating a particular state, but in not doing, not trying to do anything. And what I call the joy of simply being where you let go of trying, you let go of any kind of strain or struggle to make anything happen, and you simply just rest in the moment. This requires trust, it requires surrender, but you probably have had moments where you weren't trying to meditate. The Tibetans talk about it as non-meditation. Meditation that's non, you're not the meditator, where you simply are resting in awareness. And this is a beautiful thing that I hope that when there are moments when you're very, very connected and you're here, that you see you don't have to try to make the moment happen. You can just allow and rest and let it be and let yourself be and just be. Just for a moment now, just to give you a little taste. We do a little bit more of this, uh, maybe tomorrow morning. Just uh, relax and go inside. Don't try to make anything happen. Simply relax and receive the moment just as it is. No effort, nothing extra. Just let yourself be and feel life moving through you. No struggle, no trying, just receiving the moment, receiving life. And as you do, I'll close with a poem that points to this by Dana Falls. Settle in the here and now. 
reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. Feel relief flood into every cell. Nothing to do. Nothing to be but what you are already. Nothing to receive but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run toward. Just this breath, awareness, knowing itself as embodiment. Just this breath, awareness, waking up to truth. Thank you for your attention. And I, I do encourage you to keep in mind this way of holding practice, not only overcoming the difficult, but in cultivate the, cultivating the wholesome. And when it's here, don't miss it. Just relax into it. So enjoy your um, walking period and we'll come back for one last sitting. Thank you. <laughs>